Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said recently, whenever I go to community meetings, it always comes up. Young and middle-aged and even some elderly, it tortures them. What was he talking about? Student loan debt. So, is what we call higher education an individual investment or a public good? The way news media talk about it could be decisive in terms of what we do about it. We'll hear from Braxton Brewington, press secretary and organizer at the group Debt Collective. Also on the show, maybe I'm a semanticist, but when media say there's a debate about transgender people's right to exist, I always think, well, trans people are going to exist. What's on the table is whether they get to live free from persecution, oppression, exclusion, and erasure. Texas state leadership is staking its position on that, but human beings everywhere are pushing back. And we'll talk about that with Andy Mara, executive director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. That's coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. An NBC News story headlined White House confronts political pressure to extend pause in student loan payments ahead of midterms represented much media focus on student loan debt, treating the fact that 45 million Americans owe some $1.7 trillion as an issue, an object of debate a potential election factor. And that's all true. Student loan forgiveness was one of Biden's campaign promises. The federal pause on repayments is set to expire on May 1st, and what happens with it will have an effect on the president and the party. But of course, there's also a much broader and deeper conversation to be had about student loans and about debt that hopefully will carry us beyond any particular election cycle. For an update on the current situation and our understanding of what's at stake, we're joined now by Braxton Brewington, press secretary and organizer at the group Debt Collective, a membership-based union for debtors and allies. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Braxton Brewington. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Debt Collective is not just about student debt, but are there reasons for canceling student debt in particular among the constellations of debt that your work addresses? And or is this just a moment where there's energy behind student debt and its impact? Well, there's a ton of energy behind student loan debt, which is now getting close to $2 trillion, the second highest household debt type behind mortgages, surpassing credit card and medical debt combined. And it's doubled in just the past decade as the cost of college has risen actually eight times faster than wages. So everyone from young people to even older borrowers are suffering grave consequences of crushing student loan debt. We're not able to purchase a home. We're 
having trouble starting a family or having kids, getting married, there's difficulty in just living a dignified life. It's crushing and it's dragging down our economy. And in this current moment, we now know that the president has actually the authority to broadly cancel federal student debt with an executive order. And so I think that knowledge is sort of aiding in the call for Biden to solve this crisis with just the flick of a pen. And also because, like you said, he ran on fulfilling this promise. So there's you know, reason to suspect that Biden would take on student debt cancellation as a major issue because this is something that helped get him into office. Well, there's a reason that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer co-wrote an op-ed with Derek Johnson, who's head of the NAACP, about this, because student debt plays a particular role in the lives, and as you're saying, not just the education, but the lives um, of Black people, right? Absolutely. Black Americans in particular, Black women in particular, are really bearing the brunt of the student debt crisis. 20 years after college, the average white borrower has paid off about 95% of their student loans, while the average Black borrower actually still owes about 95% of that student loan. And so 90% of Black students are forced to borrow federal dollars to even attend college. So we've actually largely closed this gap between Black and white students as to who attends college. But on the back end, Black Americans are having much more difficult time being able to pay off that loan. They're having to take out more because we've been stripped of generational wealth and uh, more likely to go into default and face other type of life barriers and consequences to make it difficult to pay off that student debt. So Black Americans are particularly bearing the brunt of this crisis. And so, you know, that's why this is exactly a matter of racial justice. And you're getting at what I think is so huge about this moment, the very idea that we're seriously considering canceling debt in the face of what you might call folk economics. You borrowed it, you owe it. That we're able to shift the frame of this conversation, I think is very meaningful. Debt Collective talks about radical imagination. We have a society that orchestrates these situations in which to get a degree, you're told you have to incur a debt that then is going to maybe yoke you for the rest of your life. It's making it a societal issue rather than an individual issue. And that just seems major to me. Yeah, there is this belief that student debtors and debtors in the 99% in particular have signed this it goes beyond the piece of paper. We've signed a moral contract, right. right, that we have to, we are required morally to pay back this debt. But what we know is that sort of belief and ideology is not held for the 1% who walk away from their debts all the time. That ideology is not set for major corporations who have been bailed out in recent decades time and time again. And so what starts to become controversial is when the 99%, when working class Americans start to demand the same. And that is the ideology that we're up against. So many individuals believe that you took out this loan and this is something that you were supposed to pay back. The truth is so many people have actually paid it back and two times over, but because of skyrocketing interest and interest capitalization and all of the other evil mechanisms of finance capitalism, 
it's literally impossible to pay back. And so we're asking and demanding uh, cancellation. And then, you know, we like to say that we are demanding abolition or cancellation, not forgiveness, because we have nothing to be sorry for, because we have the audacity to go to college for folks to try to better themselves or to simply learn something that they're interested in that is not justification for a lifetime of debt. I love that language specificity. Forgiveness is something that someone more powerful is generously offering you, and that's not the frame that we're looking at. Right. I wonder, though, then how how do you respond to the concern that cancellation without systemic reform is going to be insufficient, you know, or is it just like it's a piece of bigger things you want to happen? Yes. Well, that's why we're calling for full student debt cancellation and free college. But the thing that makes it tough is for us to have free college, that's going to require legislation. And unfortunately, this Congress is having a tough time getting anything done today. So until we can get to that point, whenever that is, hopefully it's as soon as possible, what President Biden should do is cancel all student debt on his own. So this is not going to be the catch-all solution for higher education, but it's something he can do in the now. And what Biden could do is commit to saying, I'm going to cancel student debt at the end of every semester as long as I'm the president of the United States until Congress can get their act together and pass free college. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. Canceling student debt is going to right the wrong of this nearly $2 trillion crisis, but it's not the long-term solution. The long-term solution is college for all, and that's what we're fighting for as well. Well, finally, I have been a little bit surprised at the respect that corporate news media have given to the cancellation movement. I'm kind of surprised by it. It's, it's, it's a big paradigm shift. It doesn't necessarily look like reimagining the role of debt overall. So I'm just wary. I'm just wary of, of corporate media. And I wonder, what would you like to see more of or less of? What would help in terms of journalism, in terms of public understanding of student loan debt and the crisis of it? I love this question. I think one, there's too many things to name in a short amount of time, but (laughs) one thing that we, you know, have been really trying to push in terms of dealing with corporate media is this understanding, you know, we at the Debt Collective use M&T framing, modern monetary theory, and this understanding that the federal government does not operate like a household budget, Right. Right. They have the means to do what is necessary if it's improving people's lives. And we see that with endless wars where we always have money to fight wars. And so one thing in particular with the student debt crisis that we've been struggling to get media and and thereby then their readers to understand is that cancellation is not going to weigh deeply on taxpayers, which student debtors are taxpayers. In fact, canceling student debt is actually going to boost the economy. It's actually going to create millions of jobs over the next decade. And the reason that is, is because the student loans are money that has already gone out the door. And so there's often this conflation that $1.8 trillion in student debt means $1.8 trillion that's going to come out of the pockets of people. And that's actually not how debt cancellation works. In fact, the Debt Collective has bought 
and erase debt on our own through the secondary market. And what we know is debt literally is worth pennies on the dollar. So one thing that we're trying to push through is this idea that canceling student debt is going to then hurt the economy. The truth is student debt is what hurts the economy and cancellation will improve the lives of of everyone, whether you have student debt or not, you'll benefit from the housing market booming, people being able to afford rent, putting food on the table, taking care of their children, et cetera. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for that. We've been speaking with Braxton Brewington. He's organizer and press secretary at Debt Collective. You can follow their work online at debtcollective.org. Braxton Brewington, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton issued an opinion calling gender-affirming care for trans young people child abuse. The state's governor, Greg Abbott, doubled down, directing the Texas Department of Family and Planning Services to investigate parents who support their trans children in accessing care as child abusers. Abbott also suggested that teachers, doctors, nurses, anyone really could face criminal penalties if they don't report parents and providers who support trans kids. It's frustrating to read media accounts that say LGBTQ advocates disagreed with or were concerned about this event, you know, because actually pretty much every relevant medical and legal authority weighed in immediately to say not only do those statements not reflect the legal understanding of child abuse, but they fly in the face of the fact that support for gender-affirming medical procedures comes from, for instance, the American Medical Association that states that not only is gender-affirming care appropriate, but that the absence of it leads to poor mental health outcomes. In the same week, Joe Biden told trans youth, I will always have your back in the State of the Union address. So here to help us contextualize this past week in trans news is Andy Mara, Executive Director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Andy Mara. Thank you for having me, Janine. Well, let's start with Texas. It seems important to say that laws don't have to change for people's lives to change, for people to be harmed. What do you think, maybe what you're hearing from folks in Texas, but what are your concerns about the effect of these statements on people, whether or not they change the law? Well, first thing that needs to be made clear, nothing said by Governor Abbott or the attorney general uh, in Texas has any legal basis whatsoever. Right. There hasn't been a court in Texas or a court anywhere in the country that has found gender-affirming care to be considered, quote-unquote, child abuse. It's just pure politics. And in light of the fact that Texas just concluded its primary It seems pretty obvious that Governor Abbott was more than likely drumming up support amongst his base at the expense of transgender young children 
in our country and the parents who love them dearly. I think for a lot of people, it's like it's like a joke, you know, that you would say that parents who support their child are abusers and parents who abandon or deny or punish them. Well, they are the healthy ones. But this is so obviously absurd and hateful that surely will nothing nothing will come of it. That's not really proven such a successful approach. Look, it's not legally binding what Abbott and Paxton have both declared, but it is having a profound impact on our young people and their families. People in Texas, as a result of hearing uh, the remarks and the actions taken, they might be afraid to bring their trans children to a doctor now, which is in no one's best interest. Medically necessary care should be accessible and should be determined by the patient and the healthcare provider. And unfortunately, the governor and the attorney general are sending the completely opposite message. And let's talk about the actual effects that this political rhetoric is having on our young people. You know, the Trevor Project, uh, a partner of Tildeth, conducted a report and they found 86% of LGBTQ young people in this country have said that recent politics have negatively impacted their well-being. There's like 195 state bills proposed in 2022 alone, and it's just March, you know. So we're wrong to say this is ridiculous. Like we do have to engage at every level to push back against these bills, even if they're just at a low level, even if they're just maybe not going to bubble up to become actual law, they still are having an effect. You make a great point about the volume of anti-trans bills that are cropping up in state legislatures across the country. 2021 was no exception. There was a similar number of anti-trans bills introduced in state legislatures, including in the state of Texas. And it's not a mistake. It is not a coincidence. What is happening is the result of a highly coordinated effort by a number of opponents who would seek to harm our young people in this country. Uh, Organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Heritage Foundation Concerned Women for America, these organizations have consistently attacked LGBTQ progress in this country. And their latest and greatest straw person happens to be young people. And not only is that despicable, it's quite frankly putting some of our most vulnerable people in this country at risk. We are putting trans young people in actual risk to their safety and for their well-being. And for parents, there is an incredible amount of fear and confusion about how they can best support their children during these times. So I just want to underscore, this is not a mistake. This is not a coincidence. This is a highly coordinated effort in an attempt to derail progress in this country. And sadly, for me, from a very... uh, infuriating position, the next generation is being attacked, and it's downright despicable. 
are there any particular things that you would like news media to do more of or maybe less of in terms of their reporting on trans issues and these predations on trans people's human rights? First things first, we need to remember that these attacks are on children and their families. This isn't a trans rights issue. This is an infringement on the rights of families. And we also need to remember that when we talk about gender-affirming care, it's not some ambiguous, abstract concept. It is medically necessary, life-saving care that is backed up by every major medical association in this country. We know that when trans people of all ages have access to gender-affirming care, it enables trans people to thrive. It improves their health and well-being. And I would encourage news outlets across the country to pay attention and to look for stories that explore more deeply about the positive and lasting impacts of healthcare. Politicians should not have the final say when it comes to who should receive medical care. That is completely up to a doctor. And for media outlets, as well as those of us who consume news, we have to remain skeptical of the political theater and the distraction from politicians like Governor Abbott and the Attorney General in Texas. I hear that, and I also hear how crucial intersectionality is and how often that is missing from reporting, which tends to isolate issues and harms. You can be trans on Monday, but if you're also black, well, we're going to do that story on Thursday, right? If you have a disability, well, that's Sunday. And I really appreciated Gabriel Arkell's senior counsel at Tildef, who was reminding folks that things like organizations being allowed to use religious exemptions to deny services to LGBTQ people, that that's especially bad and differently bad for poor people and working class people because they're more likely to rely on services that wealthier people can avoid. And he also noted that, you know, if we're talking about child removal, actually genuinely taking kids out of families, well, that's a much more real threat for some families than for others. And and so I know you know that you can't isolate issues. And if we're talking about responses, we have to talk about intersecting those responses. And this is as true for trans youth as it is for many other folks. Absolutely. And on the matter of religious exemptions, look, in this country – we not only have civil rights protections, we also have religious exemptions as well. And both of those things have existed in this country for decades. And look, Tildeth is a proponent and a supporter of the Equality Act, which is a piece of federal legislation that would explicitly codify gender identity and sexual orientation as protected classes. And Biden mentioned it, called it out last night. Absolutely. And we know that with this bill and also the reality of the Senate composition, this is an issue that is going to require bipartisan support. And sadly, our opponents who do not want to see this crucial piece of legislation passed 
have twisted, very uh, longstanding and common sense principles like religious exemptions and distorted them to derail progress and more specifically to derail the passage of this bill. So I would encourage listeners and particularly media outlets to delve even deeper on that particular subject because, look, our opponents are fighting tooth and nail to ensure that either progress is completely derailed or to slow it down to the fullest extent possible. And quite frankly, the trans community, but more broadly, the LGBTQ plus community, communities of color, communities of faith would all benefit from this piece of legislation. Well, let me just ask you finally, one of the things I liked about another piece I read from Gabriel Arkes was the reminder that courts, not even the Supreme Court, have the final say on an issue. The people do. And I think you've just touched on it. But if you could just say, where would you like to see people using their voice? It's easy to get discouraged when we see things like Governor Abbott and those statements. And it's easy to get confused about what actual impact that can have. And then even if it's not law, it still has an impact. What would you have listeners do to make their voices heard on this set of issues? I have received numerous emails and phone calls over the past several days related to developments in Texas. And I have been on the phone for many hours with our colleagues on the ground. And a lot of folks are asking, what can I do in this moment? How can I be of help when it feels like there is nothing that can be done? And I would say, pick up your phone or go on your computer and call or contact your U.S. Senator and call on them to pass the Equality Act. There is a crucial need for federal protections in this country that would not only strengthen existing civil rights laws in the United States, but would also expand them to include deeply marginalized community members. And for Tilda, and for me as a trans woman, as a trans woman of color, it matters when the president gets up in front of the world and delivers a State of the Union that calls on his colleagues in Congress to pass the Equality Act. That matters. And for listeners that are looking for one thing to do, in support of trans equality, I would encourage you all to contact your U.S. Senator right now and call on them to pass the Equality Act. Thank you. We've been speaking with Andy Mara, Executive Director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. You can find and follow their work online at transgenderlegal.org. Thank you so much, Andy Mara, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is brought to you by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you want to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.